podcast where unfamous pastors preach the fame of God. I'm your host, Cubby Westerberg. Our show is about listening to local Reformed pastors who minister to small congregations, but they faithfully exposit the Word and preach from the Scriptures. These unfamous pastors are unknown to basically everyone but their own congregation, so I want to introduce them to you. Our message today comes by request from a listener. It's a message I preached about a year ago, and it's on the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity used to be a huge topic of debate in the early church, but our early church fathers battled through the controversies and gave us the doctrinal formulations of the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. From them we learn that God is three in one, that each person of the Trinity is fully God, yet there is one God. Today this doctrine is often taken for granted, and that's not all bad because it's no longer a source of controversy, but it's important to understand the teaching of Scripture on this issue. And not only that, but also to appreciate it for what it means for us and our relationship with God. Let's listen in. The doctrine of the Trinity can be summarized in three statements. And we're going to look at these three statements this morning, and then we're going to follow that by three implications of what that means for us. And so the first statement or the first truth that we learn from Scripture about God's nature is that God is three persons. Genesis chapter 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here we have, at the very beginning of creation, we have God, God the Father, and right with him is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, ready to bring order to the chaos of the creation. And then if we jump ahead, we can see another creation account. In John chapter 1, and we bring in the third person of the Trinity. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so there's this Word, and this Word is with God in the beginning, and this Word is God. And if you jump down to verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is Jesus Christ. And so we have here three distinct persons. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite verses that explains or shows the Trinity is Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here in one picture, one incident, we see the Son of God being baptized and the Spirit of God descending upon him and the voice of God the Father in heaven speaking, This is my beloved Son. Right there is a picture of the three distinct persons of the Trinity. 
all at once. Now, to make that clear, I want to say that God is three distinct persons. And you may have seen this picture before. It's very helpful in our understanding of the Trinity. It's a great illustration. It says the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. And you can go around the circle or around the triangle and see that each person is distinct from the other, yet in the middle, each one is God. Which leads to the second statement that formulates our doctrine of the Trinity, which is that each person of the Godhead is fully God. Not partially, but fully God. And so the Father is God. We could look in many places in Scripture to see that the Father is God. He was in the beginning creating the heavens and the earth. He is the one we pray to as Father. The Father is God, clearly. But the Son is also God. And a verse, we could look at many verses to talk about how Jesus is God in the flesh. But I'd like to look at one that is very interesting, one of my favorites, in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Now, that's an interesting picture. Here we got the disciples. They're out on the water, and they're rowing against the wind. They're not making anywhere. And Jesus is looking down. He can see them. He's like, they're not doing very well. And so, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Like, that's not a big deal, right? He's walking on the sea. And he says, and it says, he meant to pass them by. Now, that is an interesting phrase. We're going to come back to that. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. Now it's interesting here that it says that he meant to pass them by. You know, it's interesting. Just imagine they're going away and all of a sudden Jesus just walks by. Why, why is he doing that? I believe that the author of scripture here was pointing to something that happened in the Old Testament. Something, an incident where God passed by someone and showed him his glory. You know, Moses was on Mount Sinai and he got to see God and he wrote the Ten Commandments. God wrote the Ten Commandments and Moses asked Lord, may I see your glory? And God said, I will. Not because you deserve it, but I will because I'm merciful. And he said, but you have to be in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to cover you with my hand. And as I pass by, I'm only going to let you see my back. Because if you saw me face to face, you would die. And so the Lord passes by Moses. In Exodus 33, 21, it says, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And when the Lord passed by, he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, and also a God of justice. And Moses got to see that. And when we go back or ahead to the story of Jesus, Walking on the water, meaning to pass by the disciples, we see that he was intending to show them his glory because he is this one and the same Lord who passed by Moses. 
And so they see him, and they think it's a ghost, and they're terrified, and, they, and Jesus gets into the boat, and he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And that phrase, it is I, in the Greek is ego eimi, which can also be translated as I am. And so when Jesus said, take heart, he said, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. And so here we see Jesus teaching his disciples who he is. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. And finally, the Spirit is also God. In Matthew 28, 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the, Holy, of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when we see those three together in one phrase like that, it's putting the Father, the Son, and the Spirit on an equal plane. And so we have the Father and the Son. And if we were to put someone else there, it wouldn't match, would it? If we said the Father, the Son, and the Archangel Michael, it wouldn't work, right? Because that statement puts all three of them on the same level. Because the Spirit is also God. So it is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so each person, we could look at many verses throughout Scripture, each person of the Trinity is God. And then there's one third final statement to help us understand the doctrine of the Trinity, is this, there is one God. There is only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Isaiah 45.5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. And so God makes it very clear. He says, I am the Lord. There is no other God. There is no one other than me. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this can be a little confusing, right? We have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person is God, yet there is one God. These three together make the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, you might be saying, how does that work? Well, this is a paradox. There's a paradox on that picture. <laughs> we got two docs, paradox. Uh, but a paradox is a paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. Now, if you look at a paradox, here's an example. If you say something along the lines of, you can only be free if you become a slave of Christ. That sounds contradictory, doesn't it? How can you be free and a slave at the same time? The freedom is if we look a little deeper, the freedom is freedom from sin, and the slavery is actually freedom in Christ. It's a slavery to righteousness. And so this phrase on the surface looks like a contradiction, but when you look at it deeper, you can understand that it's talking about two different things. Freedom from sin is freedom in Christ, and it's also slavery to righteousness. That's a paradox. Now, a paradox is important to understand because there are paradoxes in life and there are paradoxes in Scripture. But the, the Trinity actually is a little step further. R.C. Sproul explains the Trinity and he calls it a mystery. I believe that term is very helpful to understand because a mystery is this. A mystery is something that appears to be contradictory, yet it is not. Nevertheless, it still remains impossible to fully understand. We can understand the paradox, but the mystery, we can't fully understand. The Trinity is not a contradiction, but it is a mystery that we cannot fully grasp. Let me explain what a contradiction is so you can understand this a little better. 
A contradiction is when two statements directly contradict one another. And so, for example, if I were to say, this water bottle is a water bottle, and this water bottle is not a water bottle. I might sound kind of smart saying that, but I'm just being silly, right? That's a contradiction. The water bottle can't be a water bottle and not a water bottle at the same time. You can't have A and not A at the same time. A contradiction is when two things directly contradict. So this is an example. If we were to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity in this way, it would be a contradiction, saying God is three persons, yet God is one person. You can't have three persons and one person. That's not what the Scripture teaches, though. God is three persons, yet God is one in essence. They're two different categories and two different things speaking about the one God. We can't fully understand it. It's a mystery, but it's not illogical. It's not a contradiction. And so when you talk to people, if you are explaining the Trinity, they say, well, that's a contradiction. You can help them understand the difference between a contradiction and a mystery. It is a mystery. We can't fully understand it, but it is not illogical. Now, Augustine, he was one of the great Christian leaders of the fifth century, and he gave a great deal of time to thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity. One day, he was walking along the seashore, and he saw a boy digging in the sand, and he asked him what he was trying to do, and the youngster replied that he wanted to empty the sea into his hole in the sand. Not going to work very well, is it? He's got a little hole by the sand, by the beach, and he wants to empty the whole sea into that. Augustine said, it got him to thinking, and he said, am I not trying to do the same thing as this child in seeking to exhaust with my own reason the infinity of God and to collect within it the limits of my own mind? You see, our mind is that small hole in the sand, and God is the infinite sea out there. And when we try to understand him within our own mind, we can't. We can't fit his infinite greatness and mystery into our minds, so we can't understand it. And so I believe that's a very helpful illustration to say it's a mystery that we can't understand because we're seeking to understand the infinite. Now, what's interesting is that as you learn about the doctrine of the Trinity, although it is hard to understand on one level, on another level, it makes perfect sense. It makes so much sense with our world, and with the God who created us. And so C.S. Lewis said, the Trinity is something we could never have guessed. And yet, once we have been told, one almost feels one ought to have been able to guess it because it fits in so well with all the things that we know already. Let me explain that a little bit. There's three things, three implications I want to share that we know because of the Trinity. And without the Trinity, we wouldn't know. That makes sense with this doctrine. Number one, we know relationships because God is relational. Two, we know his salvation. And three, we know his Trinitarian grace in our daily lives. And so first of all, we know relationships because God is relational. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's some interesting things in this passage. It says, first of all, let us make man in our image. This is referring 
within himself to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God is speaking not to the angels or not to anybody else. He's saying, let us make man in our image as a relational being like we are. And so at the end there, it says he created them in his image, male and female, he created them. You see, if God were just one God, and there wasn't the Son, and there wasn't the Spirit, it was just God the Father. If God had created us in his image, he would have created one person that doesn't relate to anybody else. He wouldn't have been able to create a creation that could relate to him because he wouldn't know what a relationship is. And so he created us in his image because as relational beings, because he himself is relational. And so then we learn from that, that we're relational, we're to relate to one another, and we're to relate to God. And when you look at creation, our creator must be a relational being. Because if he created us as relational and he himself was not, he would have created something greater than himself. But we are an image of him, the relational God as relational beings. And so you can see how though we can't fully grasp it, it makes sense with the world that God has created. We know relationships because God is relational. Second, we know his salvation. Since Pastor wasn't able to be here today, I chose to use one of his favorite verses so we could have a little taste while he's gone. It says, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Now, this passage teaches us a few things. First of all, that God the Father gave a people to Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that before the foundation of the world, God predestined us and chose us in Christ to be saved. So our salvation that we know because of him is because, first of all, the Father chose us. And then secondly, the Father sent the Son. And the Son came and he lived a perfect life in our place. And he died on the cross in our place, and he rose again. And he ascended into heaven, and together the Father and the Son then sent the Spirit to complete the work that they started. Without the Spirit drawing us, without the Spirit giving us the word and teaching us God's way, without the Spirit regenerating us and making us a new creation, we wouldn't be able to be saved. And so we know his salvation because the Father chose us, the Son died for us, and the Spirit calls us and draws us to him. And so salvation is a work, a Trinitarian work of God, that he saved us through himself fully. And that makes sense because how could God die for our sins if he wasn't the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? God the Father punished the Son for our sins and justice, and the Spirit drew us in. And so all of them work together. It makes so much sense with who God is and how his salvation works. And so we know his salvation because all three work together to bring us salvation. And the third implication is we experience his Trinitarian grace every day. Now, I, I coined that phrase. There might, someone else might have said it, but I like to call it, I want to call it Trinitarian grace. Grace that's practical Grace that's with us every day from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Someone once said, imagine yourself kneeling and praying the Lord's Prayer, praying the prayer that Jesus taught us. 
Now imagine Jesus is standing beside you. And so we begin by praying our Father. And immediately we see it is Jesus who is helping us to have a right relationship with the Father. Now also imagine it is the Holy Spirit inside of you who is giving you the power to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. So the Son is beside you, the Father above you, the Spirit inside you, all working to give us a right relationship with God. The third implication of the Trinity is that all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, work in us and with us daily, causing us to live for Him and to know His grace in a real and practical way. We can call this Trinitarian grace. The Father above you, Jesus beside you, and the Spirit inside of you. Praise God for all that He is. Amen? Praise Him for His grace. Praise Him for His Trinitarian grace. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Thank you for listening today. And if you were edified by what you heard, please leave us a review and share this episode with a friend. And I'd like to take a minute to remind you that we have a powerful conference coming up this fall at our church. It's our annual Biblical Counseling Conference. The idea is this. Everyone gives advice, but is your counsel biblical? Every one of us has opportunities every day to counsel our friends, our family, and our coworkers. But have you ever stopped to think about whether you are giving good biblical advice? This conference is designed to equip you to be ready to counsel in any situation. And not only that, it will give you counsel for your own life. If you're interested, check out our website, cp-church.org conference and register today. And as always, take the truth you've heard, apply it to your life, and live it out in ministry 24-7.